We're back! We're back! It's a distraction. I'm through. That's Roth. How you doing, Roth? I'm good, man. How are things? I, uh, I'll be honest. I have not been great for the past month and a half, I would what? say. Um, I wrote about it a little bit at Defector. I wrote about that I had gotten a nasty bit of heartburn or reflux. I like to call it reflux now to make sure that, uh, to make it clear that your heart is not what is actually on fire. Right. Like just, I thought it was because you didn't want to sound too much like Walter Matthau or whatever. You wanted it to sound a little more clinical and not just being like, I always have it. Well, I, you know, I remember when they started calling it reflux. I was like, well, people are so politically correct now. God. So anyway, <laughs> so I get I get Going this Dennis shame. Leary mode on Pepsid. I get this heartburn. It is like, it's debilitating. Like, I have to like sit down. Like, it's like, it's very, very painful. It's excruciatingly painful. Drew's story about heartburn goes on for five more minutes. We're fast forwarding to the end of it. Turned out that all I had to do was take the right medication for heartburn and actually do what my doctor told me the first time, where he's like, coffee, chocolate, spicy foods, tomatoes, those are all going to mess with it. But I was like, well, I'm on the pill. I don't have to do any of the actual <laughs> stuff. Like, I hate it when I have to take a pill but then I had to do work on top of the pill. Like I want the pill to do everything. So you're on the, you're like eating like Donald Trump now. Like it's just white rice and, and beefs. Nah, like cereal and okay. shit like that. Anyway, hi Ray. Sorry about that. You had to listen to a bunch of bullshit. How you doing Ray Ratto? I'm doing fine. And you, and, and I'm, congratulations on your diet because I saw that enormous platter of pulled pork you made the other day. That's and right. I'm immediately thinking, wow. It, now, he just showed us a picture of his death wish. Yep. Yep. And I, I think that it. was all for him. Like, I guess Gabe got a little bit of it, but yeah. Yeah, my, our, our, my colleague at SFK, Gabe Fernandez, his dad and his brother came over and I served him pulled pork. And it, I, I, I was in fucking agony after I ate that pulled pork. Oh, I was like, it's worth it. Unlocking. Arr. New levels of middle-aged man podcast discussion now. Uh, sort of- he's going to be on the Quaker Oats episode of Chopped. Yeah. The other thing was like, I, I was like, oh my God, does this mean I have to quit weed too? So I like, I like Googled it with one eye closed and it's like, well, vaping could cause chest pain. I'm like, fuck. And then, and then I went to the dispensary and I'm like, do you, do you have anything I can do besides vaping? And they're like, well, we have 5 million edibles. And I'm like, well, I don't like edibles. It turns out that I had not really... Uh, understood the uh, the advances that have been made in gummy technology over the past few years. So I took a gummy home and holy shit, I was like, "Fuck!" Well, I've been wasting my lungs for the past four <laughs> goddamn years. So there's a little gummy technology. That, that's a phrase to take home with you, kids. Yep. The idea of Drew's gone off that fifty milligrams. I mean, yeah, that it's a nice uh, image. My friend sitting in his chair eating a small candy and then seeing the um, library at the edge of the universe from in, the end of Interstellar. It was fucking great. It was it was primo shit and like so much cheaper too. I feel like anyway, coming out yep. the top and all of this. But hey, let's talk about like actual stuff that's happening because right before we don't uh, you think we should ask Ray about how his digestive tract before we get started so that everyone gets yeah to get Ray on the how's record? your asshole doing you have a healthy asshole <laughs> is it okay it's all good you're doing great oh <laughs> hey, hey, hey we love it. we See, love Ray he's a pro he knows. 
So we have a a big sports story that's happening like as we speak and none of us really know anything about it. Is that best practices to talk about that? We have to we have to talk about it. We know everything we need to know because the big fish eats the little fish. Right. So let's talk about that. Let's be clearer about this. Um, right before we started recording this uh, this morning, news broke uh, that the Pro Golfers Association, the PGA of America, and the Live Golf Tour, backed by uh, the Saudis, are merging. Now that, the merging part is where things get a little bit sticky. But I want to just give you a quick background because um, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Greg Norman uh, went over... Uh, to Saudi Arabia and worked with the prince and with the Saudi Arabian government to begin the Live Golf Tour. They poached uh, a lot of PGA luminaries, particularly uh, Brooks Kepka and Bryson DeChambeau, paid them hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars to come over. The PGA sued Live, Live sued back. There was always a question of whether or not PGA... Uh, whether or not live golfers would be welcome at PGA events. So there was a lot of just going back and forth uh, between these between these two entities and always with the idea that the PGA were, and look, I got the biggest fucking air quotes around this that I can possibly have, that they were the good guys because they were not backed by a Saudi the uh, sovereign government. wealth fund of a homicidal petro state. Yes, that's right. Yes, thank you, Roth. So, uh, but now... <laughs> But now the PJ was like, you know what? For the good of the game, I think we're gonna go ahead and uh, go ahead and merge. And other golfers who who held out morally, like Rory McIlroy and some other guys, they are fucking pissed right now. So like Mackenzie Hughes, he just tweeted nothing like finding out through Twitter that we're merging with a tour we said we'd never do that with, which is pretty basic shit. Ray, uh, you're a very very smart person. Uh, can you give us essentially? a breakdown of what this means. Does this mean essentially that the Saudis have bought all of professional golf worldwide? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Back to that's, you. Since I get it. I we have, we have an I hour to well. fill Ray. You have to talk no, more than it, that. It, look, it's really very simple. If you look at the way soccer is run now, you are getting the, the template for while, how all sports is going to be run, which is the guy with the most money and the greatest amount of will always wins and the the saudi prince solomon um wants to buy up all sports and the only inroad they haven't been able to make yet is the nfl i don't think they've even tried with um with baseball yet but i'm not going to be surprised if within the next couple of years they have an nba team and they have an nhl team because their negotiating strategy is we can pile money higher than you can. We have the best Jenga tower, and we don't care. And unlimited wealth and a complete absence of not conscience, but worries about whether you're, you know, you're hitting the bottom line. I mean, that's undefeated in the history of the universe. There's no, there's no conscience either. I just, I just want to make that clear. Well, no, but how much conscience is there? in the PGA tour or at an NFL owners meeting. You don't understand the PGA tour did golf the right way. Ray Ratto. I'm not going to hear you besmirch the, this was definitely reputation. one of those instances where of all the things that you could have to cheer for, because like, obviously like the Saudi sovereign wealth fund is not like, if your first instinct is to be like, Oh, I love their work. Like, and I'm a, you know, I've always been a huge fan. Then like, 
but you're probably not somebody who listens to this podcast, so I can say whatever I want about you. But of the institutions that would try to be co-opted by like amoral <laughs> foreign money, like the PGA Tour is a really hard one to kind of be like, I, I just thought they were neat. Like they sucked. <laughs> right. They were terrible. They were absolutely corruptible. And this is how they would be corrupted. I think that and that's, you know, to raise point too. like there's a part of me. Like this, you know, in my head that's kind of being like, well, you know, there's actually a rule against sovereign wealth funds owning uh, NBA teams or whatever. And it's like, that doesn't fucking matter, dude. Like, we already know that. Like, if there's enough money there, they will change the rule. They will change any rule to reflect that. Rules or suggestions? Yeah. There was an interesting dynamic to this because the way it began was with Live Golf being an alternate tour. And the idea was they'd buy enough people that they would essentially render the PGA Tour obsolete and they would dominate with live golf. But they had, you know, they had a really idiotic team format that no one gave a flying fuck about. No one went to the events. No one watched them on television. They had to, I think they had to pay to get their events on television. Yeah. So it was just like, so I think it was clear, at least to the Saudis, that the way they were doing this in terms of, you could, you can't just buy a sport and it remains exactly as popular when you import it over to whatever shitty butt fucked XFL of golf that you've decided to create. Like people are like, no, they want they want the shit that's already there. And so I think it was the Saudis being like, okay, well, we can't do this on our own. We're just gonna have to buy the whole fucking thing. And like I don't think like the actual live part, I can't imagine that sticking around. It's just gonna be the PGA, but the Saudis will just own it, right? Right? I think so. I mean, you know. All that is branding, and branding is whatever you want it to call. I mean, they could just put skull and crossbones on everybody's polo shirts and do the same thing. That would have been a lot cooler than just making sure that when you're wa- – because I've watched a few minutes of a live golf event on TV, which I don't want to you know, toot my own horn here, but there's <laughs> yeah. like 3,500 people in the United States that can say as much. Right. got one of them on this podcast, and it sucked. It was like a regular golf event, except for there's no energy from the crowd, and you could like always faintly hear an Ariana Grande song playing in the background. <laughs> like it was just a really – like there's nothing – this is a point that Chris Thompson, who's covered it for us, uh, has made too, that like all of the live shit was so janky. Like the stuff that they were adding, you know, that it's like it's like a party outside. Like there's a guy on stilts there. Right. Like, all of that – you could just dump that. Like that's not low bearing it's not important to the broader concept like just turn the music off and you have something that is recognizably you know a normal golf event yeah it's it's hard to believe but it really is about the golf people are just there for the golf (laughs) they don't want a fucking water park it's kind of like 1980 where somebody buys nbc and then fires everybody and then they said oh no wait we need saturday night live back and they hire lauren michaels to work for them um, yep. And it's it's just it's it's the Saudi said well, how we're doing it ain't working, even though we've got the biggest names. So let's buy the other guy. So there's nobody who can argue with us. And now the new problem is they've got the same problem golf's had since Tiger became irrelevant, which is nobody wants to watch it unless it's Tiger. Yeah. So well, their so their big test now is to create a new Tiger. And good luck with that. What I don't know that I would trust Mohammed bin Salman with that one, but I, you know, if you got to have anybody doing it, it might as well be somebody who's never succeeded in doing anything in their life. I, I also I think that I think you're overstating 
golf's, you know, sort of post-Tiger issues. Like, people still, millions of people still watched the Masters this year and shit like that. Like, the, you know, people still go to the events. Like, it is still, you know, is certainly vastly more popular than any of the live shit, right? So then my question to you, Ray, is going to be, for the people who like golf, as it was two years ago, before all this started, do you think it's any of them are really going to bail if now that's going to be essentially back to quote unquote normal, it's just going to happen to be owned by the Saudis. Like, I don't think those people are going to give a fuck. No, uh, they're not. But if they're trying to grow an audience rather than just hold the one they've got, which is largely old white folks, um, they have to figure out a way to make tournaments that casual fans are interested in other than three of the four majors plus the waste management open. Yeah. Because that's what they've got. But do they give a fuck about growing the sport of golf? I don't think that they do. I think they like having golf. I think there's like having and that, and that might very well be true. But at some point, you have to accept the fact that your audience is dying because all audiences die. I mean, that's, that's, well, that's the beauty of, of life. Eventually, you get handed your bill and you need to leave the hotel. And... I think that's been the problem with golf is that they are now sort of a advanced version of horse racing, whereas there are three days a year in which people who like horse racing really get jazzed. And that's, you know, the, you know, the triple crown, maybe the Breeders' Cup and the rest of the year. It's just sort of dull white noise that nobody watches. But you can gamble on it. Well, you can gamble on it, but nobody's gambling on the fifth that, uh, you know, at, at Churchill Downs, especially now that Churchill Downs is shut down. Right, I was going to say, that is a very yeah, general example. Yeah, they killed all the fucking horses. Yeah. yeah. That's oh, just of, a dozen in a month. Yeah, you God. know, one every two and a half days. It is nice to know that there is actually, like, an upper boundary. I don't like that it's a horse dies every 72 hours. Uh, like, that that's what it takes for them to shut it down. But the horse racing thing is an interesting call, because I feel like with golf, you know, obviously, like, the sovereign wealth fund that was backing live had established that they were willing to lose, you know, a billion dollars in a year. And I would always, you know, because I don't have a billion dollars, I fill in the rest of that sentence as being like, you know, lose a billion dollars this year so that eventually you can create a viable business or whatever. I think the, the part that's harder to compute in this is that it may not matter to them whether it ever becomes a viable business. It may not matter to them if their audience dies. It may not matter to them if people stop showing up at PGA Tour events. That like, if this is a purchase that you're making with money that you have and will never run out of because there's a bottomless, you know, global appetite for the stuff that sits under the ground where your country is. That's oil. It's called oil. Or, yeah, or gas, whichever. Both are great. Uh, But in those circumstances that's the part where it gets like sort of hard to talk about it as you know something that even has a strategy attached to it because it doesn't have to have that it does like this is basically it's a buying a house and trashing it right and like that's a stupid thing because like you need to live in a house but if you have another house if you have an infinite number of houses you can buy and trash whatever you want if i cared more about golf i think i would be more upset about this there's always this is always the issue with the PGA Tour was that like they've been kind of 
advertising in one way or another that this was a house that you could buy and trash. Not in this sense. I don't think that they'd like put like there, it wasn't until Live did it or until the Sovereign Wealth Fund did it. It wasn't like a thing that you could buy the entire tour. But they sure didn't uh, act as if consequences could ever have applied to them. And there's a vulnerability in that, you know, in the sense that you could replace something like that if they're not working harder to make themselves irreplaceable. No, but what they did, what they did was they didn't so much buy the tournaments as much as they bought the network access. Yeah. I mean, Mm, when you go to the CW, what you're, what you're basically saying is we can't get any of the major networks or streaming services to care about us. We got these guys to like, they were going to air like a slap chop commercial 50 consecutive times and they've replaced it with our golf thing. So yeah. So they, they basically, they didn't buy the PGA as much as they bought the PGA's access right. to rich white folks. Yeah. Now you get to be on NBC and like Jim Nance is there and it doesn't feel quite as like homebrewed, like, like watching a YouTube like stream or something like that. Well, that's where it be. That's where it becomes an obvious loss leader, right? Cause it's you, you're able to penetrate those homes, no pun intended, and uh, and you know, sort of essentially, you know, it all goes back to the sports washing argument we had talked about, where you know, you now have this captive, rich white audience. You can soften them bit by bit on the idea of not only doing business with Saudi Arabia but going to Saudi Arabia, so that you know, so that some old fart couple in Florida like goes and hangs out in fucking Riyadh. And, you know, spends a lot of money in a luxury mall there for a fucking week or whatever the fuck. I mean, the interesting thing to me is when the fatwa on Brandel Chambly is going to happen. Because he is now marked for death. How come? Because he's he's a guy who pisses off golfers while on the golf channel. Oh, okay. All right, all right. Yeah. It's not Bryson DeChambeau. That's a different guy. Yeah, well, yeah, I, I know that. I know why Bryson sucks. So. Similar nameways, though. That's a very, the very, a very Sunbelt nameway. Yeah, it, it's all, it's all very 17th century France, right? Oh, so <laughs> the the so Brando Chambly now is the the commenter who dares to actually say like accurate things about golfers, and like they're like, oh, they're big mad, like oh, that yeah, oh that yeah. We have found out that there is Trevor Bauer is less sensitive about what is said about him than almost every golfer. Golfers are amazing. I they it's they're magic. And I feel like that's the thing with like Rory McIlroy. You could definitely mistake the fact that he he had a, you know, it seemed like a decently principled stance against this, but also he just doesn't like anything. So if you ask him about something, he's going to be like, "Oh, fuck, no." But in like a northern <laughs> Irish accent. Shays- and, oh no, he's he's profoundly Irish in every way. And so in this case, which, you know, if you point it in the right direction, like obviously you can look at it and be like, there's a guy who stands up for his beliefs, but his belief is always that he should be left alone and not made to do stuff, which again is relatable. His belief is that Greg Norman needs to be beaten to death with snow shovels. Well, that is his, that is his core ethos. And is he wrong? Is he wrong? They should all be beaten to death with (laughs) shovels. Can I tell you that when when I think of Greg Norman now, I think about when he and Chris ever both divorced their spouses to marry each other and they went they had some interview like I think it was on Today Show and they're like, we can't keep our hands off of each other. All we do is fuck. It's great. <laughs> and then they got divorced like a year later. That's yeah. all I think about. I think about horny ass Greg Norman and horny ass Chris Everett getting after it. Can I elevate a question that Eric asked in, in our chat that I 
I think was not asked as a joke because this is something that sports watching is one of those things where like you say the word and it's like when it's a foreign wealth fund buying a team and then they make that team good by spending money on it. That does make you think as a fan, you're like, oh, well, I like these guys because they bought this free agent that I wanted them to get or they you know, spent a billion dollars on the transfer market and they made my local soccer team better. Right. That's one thing. When you get a promotion like this, when you buy like something more like a tour, so Eric's question was, is caring about the Saudis coded as woke? Like, is this the sort of thing where the idea is, and this is something that I've sort of, I was curious about this with Liv because I always thought that Liv was primarily a way to kind of back channel money into the Trump family and that sort of like agglomeration of extremely bribable American reactionaries who are like open to partnering with anybody who will give them some money under the table. In this instance, it seems like the sort of thing where if sports washing is the idea of softening your image in the public as a generally unloved thing like the Saudi royal family. I don't know that this is going to work as that, but the idea of like, it doesn't seem like it's exactly the same thing as buying a team and building it up or, uh, you know, bringing some, you know, attention to your, like, cause I don't know that like tourism to Riyadh is exactly like the end game here. Yeah. That, that it, might've been a bit of a stretch. It, so it's what, not. But what are, so what do you think the actual, gambit is here because it's easy to see how this could be like the things that the Saudis have spent money on you know in terms of like in this they spend a lot of money on WWE UFC stuff it is all kind of like entertainment for men that has a sort of a conservative cultural coding but I don't think that I can exactly detect a strategy one way or another beyond the fact that this is like I guess maybe also an expression of what the royal family likes it, I, here's my theory. It is if, if they can get everybody to like the Saudi government more, that's gravy. But what they're really doing is putting a foot in the door of American mega business. It's it's really it's a money play, first of all. And what they're finding out is that nobody cares who owns your team if your team does well. I mean, Manchester City. Um, Paris Saint-Germain, you know, if they've already got they've already got some of the biggest soccer teams in the world and fans keep coming out if the team's good. And when the team's bad, they don't scream, you know, fire the sultan, they scream fire the coach. Right. And so they're finding out that most Americans are amoral when it comes to who the owner of their favorite team is as long as the favorite team isn't being lousy. I mean, there are limits to that. I mean, Danny Snyder, but that took 25 years. And Danny Snyder was like repellent from the day he bought the team. Well, he never won a fucking thing either. Yep. Yeah. And it took a quarter century of not just evil, but mismanaged evil. Yep. For people to just say, we're not going anymore. And it just reminds me that that is the one weapon that fans still have. And it's the one that they're most afraid to use, which is, I'm not coming. Yep. This is the one, Ray's always, you've made this point, I feel like when you and I have done the podcast in the past, that like the Super League and the public response to that in Europe, or the attempt at the Super League, is like one of the very few things that you can kind of hang your hat on 
if you want to be optimistic about the future of this, because this does depend on the public. That's where the money comes from. That's like what it's for. But it, what it takes to make this stuff not happen is, you know, if the public doesn't want it, is for the public to get together and say repeatedly, we're not going to fucking stand for it. We don't want it that much. Yeah, take to the streets, invade the stadiums, and then basically recast the argument as, well, this is just Real Madrid and Barcelona trying to get out of the fact that they're slowly going bankrupt. And and there was a lot of that sort of you know xenophobia in England because most of the people who protested that were were Brits. You know, I mean, and they they basically went took to the streets in Liverpool and Manchester and London and just said, you're not doing this. But everybody knew long term is that the British teams were financially healthy. It's the Spanish teams and the one Italian team that have been spending money that they don't take in. And it was interesting that I'm going to bore you with one more soccer thing is that the one big team in Europe that didn't play along at all was Bayern Munich because they are absolutely self-contained as the biggest, most important and almost only team in Germany. Right. They just said, we don't need this and we don't need to do business with you because we're doing great. Now, maybe in 10 years, the economy changes and then they need to do this. But, you know, it's it's the fact that there was a Super League, it failed. There's going to be another try. There's going to be another try after that. And they will just keep pounding at the wall until the wall comes down. Yeah, I don't know if that's correct. I think I think it, it seems to me from both the Super League and from Liv that they might have learned that they can buy whatever they want, but bastardizing it, it backfires on them. So it's better to just buy it and leave it normal. Like if you bought the NFL, which they could do, they could afford to just buy the entire fucking NFL. And you're like, you know, we're going to add 30 teams and we're not going to have a Super Bowl. We're going to have the big game at the end and it's going to be an aggregate score and it's going to be best of three. Like then people would stop watching because you fucked it all up. But if you leave it alone, then you're just doing basic sort of, uh, I'm gonna. I, this is gonna sound very manufactured and Tom Friedman esque, but basically the colonialism by capitalism that America has done to other countries for decades now. So you're basically you you're not invading a country. You're just doing business with it, and then you take it over that way. It's the same thing. It's just in reverse. And so, of course, Americans are gonna be like, whoa, 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 hey, hey, you can't buy. Our stuff? That's weird. If this is a segue into you saying this episode is sponsored by Hegemon, and then it turns out it's like a hegemonic version of Pokemon, I'm going to be really mad, because I think that's a good point otherwise. Actually, no, this podcast is sponsored by the Brooklyn Museum's latest exhibition, Jackson Bollocks. Did you know that Jackson Pollock was a pretty (laughs) shitty husband? Well, Irish comedian Jenny O'Donnell sure did. That's why she worked with the Brooklyn Museum to curate an exhibit that exclusively includes two of Pollock's cheapest paintings, 16 different Wikipedia entries printed out and taped to the wall, plus two dozen works from respected but stylistically unrelated female artists, none of whom are Lee Krasner. That's Jackson Bollocks, only at the Brooklyn Museum. New art, who dis? We'll be right back with Ray Ratto. <laughs> wow. The Distraction is sponsored this week by Athletic Greens. They provide comprehensive nutrition and gut health support in one convenient scoop. 
Their all-in-one formula makes it easy for you to cover your nutritional bases every day. Every scoop is packed with 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients of the highest quality that give major benefits like gut and mood support, boosted energy, and even healthier looking skin, hair, and nails. If you're on the road, they make convenient single-serving travel packs so you never have to miss a day either. You can just mix the powder into cold water and drink it first thing each morning. Making time for yourself or your health or anything that isn't the most immediately stressful thing in front of you can be really challenging. Anything that you can do, I've found, to make that easier and to make your own life something that you value as much as the shit that stresses you out is worth it. And in that regard, Athletic Greens making it this easy makes it that much more valuable. So if you're looking for an easier way to take supplements, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D, and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com distraction. That's athleticgreens.com distraction. Check it out. We're back with Ray Ratto. Ray, uh, since you're in the Bay Area, let's talk about two of your sports teams for a moment. First up, the Golden State Warriors, who are obviously not in the NBA Finals this year, and they just let their team president, Bob Myers, walk. I foolishly assumed, and wrote a month ago, actually, that the Warriors were still very much the Warriors. They're not. What are they now, Ray, and what is happening with that team? They are a team that is seeing the end of the dynasty forced upon them by their own hand. And they are going to find out the metaphysical limits of what Stephen Curry can do to other people because he has papered over some slowly growing cracks in that organization that winning the championship last year seemed to convince people that, Oh, they really are here for the long term and they're going to endure no matter what. And it's, it's me raising out, my hand rather. Right yeah. Yeah. Man. And, and no, you're not, you know, it's like, you know, when you start worrying about how much you're going to compensate your popular general manager, it stops being about winning and it starts being about money, which we all should have known. And now they've got to figure out what's our philosophy with Draymond Green. And it was interesting yesterday that Steve Kerr, he didn't call out Jordan Poole and Jonathan Kaminga as much as he sort of hinted that you can't pout your way through another season. We're not waiting for that. It's worth mentioning where he made those comments as well, right? What, why? Which is... Draymond Green's podcast. Oh, you're on Draymond's yeah. podcast. But I mean, his philosophy has always been: we're going to ride this as long as it can go. And I think, in some ways, he felt like he was forced upon this two timeline track that now everybody is denying ever existed. But it was very clear that they wanted to extend the dynasty while the dynasty was still going on. And it's hard enough to keep one train of thought in sports, let alone try to gravitate to another that's half formed and maybe it would have worked if james wiseman hadn't been a mistake but he was yeah this is the thing that's always like makes it impossible i mean unless you're like whatever the spurs managed to do it like because they were picking at the end of the first round and the second round and they got a lot of those picks incredibly right you know which is how you can retool a dynasty with like tony parker and manu ginobili and stuff people that are 
effectively available to you because you scouted better than anyone else. I feel like if Wiseman or even Kaminga seems pretty good to me. I haven't watched him closely. Kerr clearly doesn't trust him yet and doesn't trust Moses Moody at all. But like if they got that stuff right, as it seemed like they got Jordan Poole right, right up until it seemed like they didn't, that like that is it was doable for them. It seems like that's the I mean, you don't want to put it on on Myers necessarily, but it's that that next generation that's supposed to kind of like phase in one way or another just for I mean at least in the eyes of the coach doesn't seem capable of doing that is that fair uh I don't know what's fair because I think they're in they're in the early stages of this weird transition that they thought could go smoothly because they are them and their culture is you know impenetrable and it's the most wonderful thing ever when it turns out they're just another team I mean, when you talked about the Spurs, yeah, they got a bunch of ancillary picks right. But what they really did was the same thing that the Packers did when they went from Favre to Rodgers and what the 49ers did when they went from Montana to Young. It's that they had a generational player and they replaced him with another general play, yeah. generational player. It's as simple as that. I don't know why more teams don't do it. No, but exactly. it, didn't it make sense at the time when they were like, Jordan Poole had a, was very good. Um, during the title run, right? He was he was a bit inconsistent. Maybe he was he, he was a streak shooter, but you know, look, he started off poorly. They sent him down to the G League for a while. Yes, I remember that. Um, and what they found out is that he is the guy that he was at Michigan, which is if the ball's not in my hands, I don't know what to do with myself. And he's not so good with the ball in his hands that you could make him the next Stephen Curry, and. There is no next Stephen Curry, it seems to me. So it's really about them trying to figure out a solution to a problem that had not fully ripened yet. And they got out, they got out over their skis. And now, you know, I think Joe Lacob looked at Myers and said, you can't recreate this again. So I'm not going to pay you what you're probably worth on the open market. I have Mike Dunleavy. He'll do what I He'll do what I want for like one third the cost. And then I've got one of my kids who can do it after I get rid of Dunleavy. Oh, that sounds and a good idea. Dunleavy is a funny pick to me because I, I have never known a Warriors fan that had a single kind thing to say about that guy. I don't know a single basketball fan who has a I mean, he's like, he had a good college career. He had a good long NBA career, but it's just this, it's the idea of like, you know, replacing this GM with like, whatever the opposite of a franchise icon is, it's like if the Mets made a big point of like featuring Brett Saberhagen in their public facing stuff. Like, no, he's not a guy that people aren't going to be inclined to trust, right? But I don't think anybody looks at Dunleavy as a long-term solution as the logical inheritor of Myers's crown. And I think it's, it's interesting to note that Steve Kerr is entering the last year of his contract. And I would not be surprised if he doesn't get re-upped either. Um, just because I think Joe Lacob is wildly impatient and he wants to know what's going to come next while he's still got something now that maybe can contend for another title. I mean, they'd have to get luckier than they were this year. But I think they found out that the second track that they were trying to build required that they hit on every draft pick and quite frankly, you look at the, the the four guys most noted, you know, in that sort of second timeline, 
the best one is pool and pool is now regarded as semi-repellent by most warrior fans yeah. because they found out that he's Monte Ellis and they've seen Monte Ellis. He's expensive now too. Draymond Green cost the team $30 million for four years because he couldn't hold his temper and he needed to punch Jordan Poole in the face. And all of a sudden, right after that, this magic new contract comes up and now they are stuck with what is potentially an enormous albatross. And that's how they became the Warriors of old, which is crappy, irrelevant, you know, 26 and 56 year after year, like what the Kings used to be. Oh, oh, oh you, had to, you had to do a drive-by on the poor Kings. Yes, I hey. did. Uh, all right, let's talk about one more team, the Oakland A's, who want to move to Vegas but can't seem to get even that right. And by the way, they're, they want to move to Vegas right as – the Golden Knights, they, as we record this, they have a 2-0 lead in the Stanley Cup Finals. And by God, that town really loves that team. They could give half a fuck about the Raiders, but they really like the Golden Knights. And they ain't going to give a fuck about the A's. So without resorting to easy gags, Ray, what's the end game for the Oakland A's right now? The end game, well, I think Albert Einstein said it best when he said, wow. they wow. are Einstein. hopelessly and irrevocably fucked. <laughs> The, the A's have fought for most of their existence in Oakland for leverage, and they've never had it, except for the period in which they were owned by Walter Haas, who was the guy who owned Levi's, who wasn't looking for leverage. He just said, I want to have a nice baseball team for the town that I live in. And they threw money at it, and they got great players, and they went to three World Series, and they were a delight. And then he went and died. And since then, they've been replaced ownership-wise by, you know, a couple of sets of, you know, cheapskate grifters. And this is now the end game for that because fans in Oakland have finally decided, you know what? We don't have to go. If they're not going to try, why should we? And now they're trying to create leverage. They've tried to create leverage in Fremont, San Jose, north of the Coliseum, further north of the Coliseum, and further north of the Coliseum. And nobody is willing to give them the amounts of money that they are demanding. And they're just saying, nah, you figure out where you want to go. And the fact is, nobody wants the A's because the ownership clearly damaged the brand to such an extent that they're not a get. And Vegas in particular doesn't want the A's because they don't need the A's. They are going to get, and in five years, their hierarchy of teams will be the NBA expansion franchise they're going to get, the Golden Knights, the Raiders. Baseball is, I mean, they don't need it. It's like Circus Circus next to the Bellagio. Yeah. They're not interested. Respect and the circus, truth circus, is, the fa- like last night, the Nevada legislature basically told the governor of the state, we're not giving those guys $300 million. They're not getting a dime from us. We're just going to sit on this. We're not even going to act on it. I mean, the ultimate, the ultimate rejection is inertia. And they're just not interested. They, don't, they felt burned by the stadium deal that the Raiders got. And to your point about the Golden Knights, Drew, the Knights, are they're the homegrown team, and they're the one that's marketed to the locals. and. They, to a, from a tragic yet fortuitous uh, circumstance, 
they made their appearance right after that horrific uh, hotel parking lot shooting. Right. And they put together an opening night tribute to the victims and the first responders that res- that just hit the town perfectly. Their first captain, Derek England, was a guy from Vegas. And he, it wasn't it wasn't contrived. He was a legitimate NHL player. He just happened to be a native of Vegas. And they became the team that they love. They're the ones that the people who live there feel the most passionate about. And they don't need to have 500,000 fans. All they need is 18,000 over and over and over again. And they get that. They've been there for six years. They haven't had an empty seat yet. And now they're halfway to a Stanley Cup, which is going to cement their place for another 15 years. I mean, there is no pun intended. They're as golden as golden can be in a town that responds to gold. But what if you, uh, but how about, you know, uh, Estuary Ruiz? You're familiar with his work? With the A's, yes. very fast. So wouldn't that have the same sort of effect as what you were just saying if you brought in a fast guy and then Brent Rooker was also in the lineup slightly lower mm, down? That's a good point, Roth. Mm, thanks. Well, you're, you're absolutely right because the solution to all sports problems is guy. <laughs> you gotta, it's, nothing, it's the only thing that's proven to work. And, and by guys, and by guys, don't mean it as a gender thing. I just mean it as names that nobody else correct. No, it's like a tranche of athlete. Everybody, yeah. everybody knows but, what that but is. But weirdly enough, the A's, who are going to be one of the worst teams of the last 125 years, the baseball team is not the problem. It's the owner who's the problem and his right hand guy and their inability to get anybody to think that they have leverage on anybody. I mean, there's nothing worse than a guy who walks into a room acting like, you know, his shit doesn't stink. And then you just have people go, man, try some deodorant. Right. And then walk away. They just ignore them. They don't even hate them as much as they just walk away from them. And there's nothing more deflating than that. And that's where they're at. That's the part of it that, you know, obviously I feel bad because like the A's have been like a really you know, more a good organization than not throughout my life. Like Oakland's a fun town. They deserve a real baseball team. But in a sort of a weird, like in the same way that, uh, you know, sometimes I like television comedies that seem a little mean. I have greatly enjoyed John Fisher and I guess Dave Koval is the guy that is, is like factotum. Like seeing them persistently misread every situation that they have been in and over play their hand has been kind of like a delight in the way that it's like watching them fall down a long flight of stairs on a sort of like a regular every 48 hours cadence for a long time. Like it's not sophisticated comedy, but seeing unpleasant people have to eat shit like does have a, a sort of like essentially a warming effect. Yeah, on they're, they're falling down an endless escalator. It's not even a flight of stairs because they fall forever. I do like I do like the the businessmen who think they have the Steve Jobs like reality distortion field power where mm-hmm. they're like they can just make it happen by telling people to do it or like we're go- well we're going to build on Howard Terminal and it's going to be incredible and this is what the city wants and this is what the city needs and the city's like we didn't say any of that get yeah. fucked you're like wait like wait. you have a, you can't do Jedi mind tricks just because yeah. your dad invented the gap <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah, no, it's and it's not even that they want other people to do it for them. They just want other people to pay for it. Right. Of course. I mean, that's the, I mean, it's the grip that every ownership has, but 
for to get other people to pay for it, you have to say, you really need this. Like the Dallas Cowboys got a new stadium that they didn't need because of that. The Texas Rangers got two stadiums they didn't need because they convinced people, oh, you got to have us. The A's have never been able to convince anybody that they're needed. Texans are of unsound mind. So <laughs> I don't know if it's interesting to note, but it always fascinates me that John Fisher's dad was one of the original investors in the Giants when they got sold in 1993. And within a year, uh, he and his fellow billionaires got sort of eased out by this guy named Peter McGowan, who was not a big money guy, but he was the guy they propped up to put in position to run the team. And eventually within a year, they got fed up with him and they all left. And as time went on, um, you know, that resentment sort of, I think, built up in John Fisher to the point where he bought the A's, even though he wasn't interested in really having a baseball team as a way to get back at Peter McGowan, because we, we still owned the Giants. McGowan's also one of the very rare, like actually beloved owner types, mostly because he paid for bonds, right? And he's one type. Yes. Well, no, no, yeah. no. The guy who the actual that's a great story, too, because the guy who, you know, made the deal for bonds was Bob Lurie, who was on the way out. And they want to try to figure out a way to make him pay for bonds rather than the new ownership. And and Lurie said, No, I'm not I'm not paying, he's not playing for me anymore. But anyway, fast forward, 2005, Fisher buys the A's. He's going to he's going to crush Peter McGowan. And within two years, Peter McGowan is forced out by a different guy. And so now Fisher's got a team he doesn't want, and he's got a target of people that never did his dad any wrong. So he's got this useless piece of bric-a-brac whose only value is it generates money because every team in baseball generates money. It, last year, they were fifth in total in, in um, profit. They made $62 million last year running that team. Wow. And they're going to make a crap ton of money this year with this team. Can Defector buy the can't lose money That's a good idea. <laughs> It's a great idea, but it's not a great idea if you're trying to impress upon people how important you are to the to the culture when you basically chase the culture away and you're still cashing checks. Let's sell them to Saudi Arabia. That's the move. Hey, it's time for a guy of the week. Every week we remember an athlete of your, not a Hall of Famer necessarily, just a guy who makes you think, hey, I remember that guy. And Ray, since you are of our proper age, I can pull this one out. From way downtown. It's Stan Humphreys. You remember that guy, Ray? Oh, fabulous Charger quarterback of indifferent vintage. Yeah, of course. Um, he was he was one of those. He was a prototypical quarterback of that era, which was he's not very mobile. No. He can throw the ball a long way, but he's not very escapable. So that he was going to take some frightful beatings waiting for Charlie Joyner to come open. And, and basically... I, only, I remember him as one of the many quarterbacks of that era who had to learn to throw the ball while laying parallel to the ground because he never he couldn't set up in the pocket and stay there. I mean, and it's one of the hardest jobs, I think, in football is to have a quarterback who can do all the things that Stan Humphrey could do and not be crushed by, you know, homicidal defensive players. Because ultimately, a quarterback really is only as good as the five mesomorphs in front of him. And he never had good enough mesomorphs to save him. I mean, and he was okay. 
He was a kind of Matt Ryan type, but he could never get them over the hump because the Chargers always have one massive flaw or more. And the massive flaws in his era were average offensive line, terrible defense. They wanted to win every game 45-43. Which I respect, but uh, yeah, not sustainable. Can I ask they, Drew, what made you think of Stan Humphreys as the guy? I don't I don't even know. I was just like... <laughs> I blacked well, out. I, I have no I idea. Even, yeah, it's, I don't like... Sometimes I do it like based upon like like the guests, like fan loyalties or whatever. But I just remembered Stan Humphreys and I was like, I remember that like, you know, he... He beat the Steelers in the AFC title game and it was like, oh, what an upset. Oh, God, the Super Bowl is going to be fucking terrible. And then it was. They got fucking <laughs> rinsed by the Niners. It was brutal. If he was pl- if Stan Humphrey was playing today, he'd be a McCown. Yeah. Oh, a thousand percent. I mean, it was all McCowns back in the day. I remember that like career shape that guys like that had. It was where Humphreys was like a guy that got to start for like three seasons, but then was like a backup for five seasons before and after that, which is like a very kind of rare uh, type of NFL career to have now, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. Like you used to have like Colts era Jim Harbaugh, like you used to have like those sorts of guys and shit yep. like that, but that doesn't really happen anymore. Hey, time to open up the fun bag. These are real questions from Defector Readers and Distraction Listeners. This is a good one for both of you, and I'm going to have Ray answer it first. Uh, this is from Ethan Ray. He writes, what is the most home runs from one player you've seen? And I don't mean how many have you seen live. I just mean how many have you seen on TV, internet, uh, TV, live. Like I wandered down a rabbit hole of King Griffey Jr. home run highlights, and I swear to God, he must have had a billion home runs that I watched. That's a lot of home runs. Do you think there is someone who has seen, well, now he's now he's getting a little too, but anyway, the point is, what player, Ray, have you seen the most home runs from? Bonds. I mean, that's a, it's sort of a, it's an unfair question for me because he hit tons of them here. And yes. it was at a time when the Giants were fun to watch or were competitive every year. So he, he was... He was not a guy who I would avoid going to the bathroom because I couldn't miss it at bat. But I would turn the TV up as I went to the bathroom in case oh, I had to listen to the home run. That play. is such that's a, a veteran move. move. Yeah. I, I feel like Bonds that. is like as an out of towner, I feel like Bonds is weirdly high on my list too, because during the years when he was doing the, you know, like the chase to whatever number was he finally landed at, like 73 or something like that. That it was they were always doing live look-ins whenever he would come up to bat and it was like if he didn't walk i feel like i did see him hit a homer like usually those are like one of the the more reliable jinxes in sports where they're like we're just gonna go to this no hitter if we're down to the last and that's like the guy is gonna give up a bunt single at that point like you kind of know that that's going to happen yeah when like they, a when fucking they cut bloop. to something it's always a word it always fucking bonds i mean i feel like i like what i would have an easier time identifying like moments where I watched him ground out than times when he didn't hit a homer. Like it just felt like that whole period he was so unstoppable and that like even like that jinx could not slow him down. So I think for me, I think it is probably McGuire or Sosa because they had the live yeah, look-ins right? during that chase. And, and I was like, Oh my God, baseball is so pure and wonderful. And, this is history and all that stuff. By the time Bonds came around to beat the shit out of that record, I was like, well, he's on roids and he's a bad person. He's mean to the media. Like Rick Riley said so on the back page of Sports Illustrated. So I don't know if I like him. So I like, I'm sure that I like 
abstain from like a couple Bonds home runs, like out of like principle. Like, and trust me, I know, I know my principles are way off back then. I have a Riley Bond story that Ooh. at least it amuses me. Okay. Riley came out because he was going to do a Bond story. And we all knew that he was coming out and we knew how Bonds felt about him. And my relationship with Bonds was like everybody else's relationship with Bonds. It's, we didn't speak. It just, you know, he didn't, he, he had time for one guy and it was an old guy named Nick Peters who had covered his dad. And, you know, he was a fearless beat writer. You couldn't scare him. And Bonds weirdly respected that, but he had no time for anybody else. So I'm in the clubhouse this day with Riley and he's asking me questions about Bonds and I am answering him as politely as I can. I don't know very much about him because we don't speak and nobody really speaks about him. And just at that moment, Bonds walks over to to us and I'm thinking he's going to start screaming at Riley and I'm going to back away from this because that's a magic moment for them to share. Instead, in his nicest, most polite and avuncular way possible, he starts engaging me in conversation. Oh, like as if if you were buddies. That's as not only as if we were buddies, but as though it was just him and me. He froze Riley out completely. That's awesome. And so after about five minutes, he heads out to the batting cage. And Riley looks at me and goes, what was that about? And I said, I have no idea because we've never spoken that long in our lives. <laughs> so I'm curious. I walk out to the batting cage and I sidle up to him and I just go, just so I know, that was really about you, you know, telling Riley to fuck off without speaking to him and that you and I are not suddenly friend, fast friends. And he said, yeah, you got it. And he walked away. <laughs> That's great. What a move. And, and it just, and it just reminded me because his dad was Bobby Bonds and his godfather was Willie Mays. They had all learned that tactic back in the fifties and sixties. It does have the feeling of like an like an advanced but like an old timey sort of move like he's like I'm gonna try like you know it would have some sort of like carny slang name for it where he's like I'm gonna try the uh, you know Grandpop's hat with Ray Ratto and Rick Riley and see how that works yeah the freeze out the toot sure it it, it made it literally made me laugh because it was it was a trip back to baseball from 20 years earlier and it was just a guy who vomited all over a guy's shoes without even looking at him. I mean that's incredible, you know, peripheral vision and aim. Can I say? Can I say? I kind of wish that you had said to Riley, "Oh yeah, no, we're best friends. Like we hang out all the time." Like <laughs> I kind of wish you had kept up the ruse a little bit. It's not possible. The, the closest we ever got to being best friends was after they had clinched the division, and he's sitting in his Captain Kirk command chair, sort of holding semi-holding court with a bunch of people, and I am walking diagonally across the room from one. Uh, locker stall to another one and he yells hey ratto and i ignore him because i know something shitty is about to happen to me. <laughs> and i keep walking he goes hey ratto and i turn and i said yeah what do you want he goes you're a real asshole and i said yeah well my wife already knows that why are you making this point now and he says and you know why i know that i said no i give up why he goes because I'm a real asshole, too. And that Aww. was the end of that conversation. We Aww. bonded in that moment. That's respect. That yeah. is basically, that's like as close as I think Barry Bonds could get to being nice to someone that covers him. 
in a baseball. Barry setting. Bonds could be really nice to anybody who wouldn't ask anything of him. But his definition of what you're asking him for was time, attention, money, oxygen that rightly belonged <laughs> right. to him. His worldview was, my world is the world, and you are trespassing. Well, also, he didn't want, he didn't want to get fucked. He's like, ah, I'm going to talk to you. You're going to fuck me, because yeah. I'm sure his old man taught him. Can that, I ask, you know? I'm just going to make one, I know we have to end, uh, but I want to, one, like sort of the opposite side of the coin of Ethan's question in terms of whose home runs have you seen the most. I think that, so I've cheered for a lot of bad baseball in my life. Um you know, all my choice, like, it's, you know, I got to live my life according to the values that I have. Yes. I feel like I saw every start that Victor Zambrano made with the Mets, and I feel like I was at half of them. And I know that the odds are very strongly against that being the case. We used to get this, like, six-game package with my friend Jeff and his girlfriend at the time and my now wife and me, and... Over the years that we got it, I feel like we only ever saw Zambrano or Steve Traxel start, and that was that. And there's no way that there were three other guys in that rotation. I should have seen Pedro once, and I never did on that. Is there, like, a, the opposite of seeing a cool guy hit a homer? Like, who is, do you think, the, the shitty player that you have seen the most of in your oh, days? Brad, I guess they answer that question. Yeah. Um, He's not a shitty player, but right. he was omnipresent in my sort of view all the time. And it was Atlee Hamaker. You know, whenever he had a start, I was I was there. And it wasn't by choice. I mean, I was covering baseball at the time, but it seemed like I never missed one of his starts. And there were, you know, like Jason Schmidt, I met maybe saw six times in the year that he had a really good year with the Giants. But whenever it was Hamaker. I, you know, I'm there looking at it. And the beauty of Hamaker was there's only two kinds of Hamaker. The guy who goes seven innings, you know, two hits, no walks, five strikeouts, shut up ball, or one and a third, seven, six, six, five, one. You know, so that he was, that was the, the one for me. It just, he, you know, and he was a Victor Zambrano type. You know, you wouldn't get that many starts if you were shitty. It's the Roger Craig theory. Yep. You know, who just died. You know, yeah, you lose 24. You, you have to be pretty good to lose 24 games in a season. But yeah, but you know, but that was that was the one for me. I think mine is Amon Shumpert. That's not baseball, but I'm just going to say. I was going to say, like, if there's like some Vikings guy where you're just like still mad about all. But they well, I watched quarterback wise. Game, it hasn't so. really been that bad there. No, they're they've there are. They're an accomplished organization. They just happen to have never won a Super Bowl. And I'm sure no one will let me know about that, uh, you know, after we're <laughs> right. done recording this. Eric Silver is our producer. Brandon Grugel is our editor. Our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. Ads and production services are by Multitude. And you can subscribe to Defector.com right now. Just go to Defector and hit that subscribe button. You can also email us at distraction at Defector.com. Or even call us at 909-726-3720 and leave a message. That's 909-Panera0. Ray Rado. This is your first time on the podcast this year, but I promise it won't be the last. Thank you for coming on, man. Thanks, Ray. This was as much fun as we could get away with. Uh, you know what? That sounds actually kind of nice. All right. We'll see you guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.